You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. I am so honored to be here, and I'm uh, very pleased to have you all here. I see many, many familiar faces. And I know that uh, I want to thank the Mercatus Center for launching this project and for making my participation in it possible. I know that I speak for Virgil Storr and Nona Martin uh, when I convey my deep gratitude to you, Pete, for having the vision to ask the big questions, because it's the big questions, the big thorny questions that are the source of meaningful scholarship. And you do that and have done that uh, throughout your time as a scholar. And this is uh, truly an inspiration. I also do want to join Pete in thanking um, uh, Brian and Claire and also Dan Rothschild and all the many um, uh, research assistants and uh, field researchers that were part of this project. Now, Pete's vision for this project was that it's in moments of crisis that we stand to learn the most. So when a Hurricane Katrina hits the Gulf Coast, it's in a moment like this that the social order is suspended or destroyed, at least for a time. These, this is the social order that we ordinarily take for granted. How do we recover from such a process? The recovery process that unfolds in the wake of disaster, if we study it well, clearly we will learn uh, a lot of lessons about post-disaster recovery. But also, we learn a lot about the social order itself, the nature of the social order itself. And so it's with both of these things in mind that I've um, uh, crafted my comments for today is, yes, recovery process, want to understand about that, but we also want, want to understand about the social order itself. Now, the five years that have passed since Katrina may have allowed uh, the memories of the devastation and the trauma to fade somewhat, but a few pictures can be helpful in recalling you know, the sheer terror that um, disaster victims, flood victims faced in um, the hours as the water was rising and the days when they didn't know um, if they would be rescued. Certainly, the uh, uh, challenges facing uh, first responders uh, was overwhelming. And of course, there was the uh, disastrous record of uh, government response of the official rescue and relief teams that were supposed to help. This is a shot of the Mississippi Gulf Coast, the massive damage done um, from the uh, 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 storm surge. And of course, this is a picture of New Orleans when uh, the levee system throughout the city failed, leaving 80% of the city underwater. This picture is um, helpful because you can see right back here, that, that's downtown New Orleans. That's far away you know, from the water that's here. And it's flooded all the way in between and beyond uh, the downtown part of New Orleans. Now, eventually, the water does get pumped out. When the water is pumped out, this is just the beginning of uh, reckoning what has happened. This scene is typical, not atypical. This scene is typical, as is this. This is in the very beginning of 2006, so um, several months after the storm. And this scene is still 
typical, as is this and this. Imagine that this is your home. Where do you begin? Where do you begin? Now, this is a home in the Lower Ninth Ward, and so it's a very good chance that you don't have much in the way of um, savings to draw upon. And because this, this neighborhood is designated a Zone B flood risk, that means a relatively low risk of flooding, believe it or not, it's a good chance that you didn't buy, buy flood insurance. Now, the challenges of a post-disaster context certainly do involve the, financial, um, the lack of financial resources. And this has indeed been a, an important story in post-Katrina um, redevelopment, uh, especially those you know, facing individual disaster victims. But even those with financial resources often found the physical demands of, of gutting their home, remediating the mold, and then um, the, the knowledge required uh, to begin the rebuilding process to be an overwhelming prospect. But as daunting as these logistical problems are, far more daunting is the social coordination problem or the collective action problem um, that catastrophic disaster presents. Supposing my neighborhood has been destroyed by flood, I may be willing um, and interested in returning and rebuilding, but only if my neighbors are gonna do the same. If my neighbors aren't returning, well, it's not the same neighborhood that I'm returning to. So it's completely reasonable for me to hold off and wait to see if there's signs of life in the community, to see if my neighbors are returning. But I'm playing that game. Certainly my neighbors are, are doing the same thing. They're waiting on the sidelines to see if others are returning. While we're all waiting, there is no one rebuilding. And yet, we do know that some or even most communities that suffer catastrophic disaster do recover. And so that's been a central question for us in framing this work is what is it that gives communities the ability to rebound? And then the corollary question, what is it that, that inhibits communities from rebounding? Now economists are, um, have a lot to say about the role that markets can play in say post-disaster context. Prices, for example, are critical to directing scarce resources to um, where they're needed most. I mean, it's, you know, all of us in this room know that it's foolish to cap the price of, say, construction materials in a post-disaster environment when those higher prices are exactly the signal that distributors need to redirect resources where they're needed. And so the lesson there, and I want, I want us to, to revisit this familiar lesson and listen to the language, it's allowing the price signals to work that is critical to the coordination process. Similarly, we also know as economists that the coordination that um, requires that the basic rules of the social game, such as the rights and obligations of contract, property rights, and the rule of law, are maintained if the market is going to do its work in terms of post-disaster recovery. Okay, so that's something that's pretty familiar territory. Okay. What we know less about is the role that non-market, socially embedded resources play in post-disaster recovery. As we saw and in the aftermath of Katrina, government services are often slow to return, and even markets that are uh, relatively swift um, in their rebounding effect still take time to return. Now, business operators are facing exactly the same logistical um, obstacles that residents are facing in a post-disaster environment. In the earliest stages, in the earliest stages following a disaster, 
residents, business operators, church and civic leaders have to be extremely creative if they're going to tap the sources of labor and know-how that will allow them to begin the real rebuilding process in earnest. So while financial resources are obviously clearly helpful, it is often the non-financial resources that matter the most. Socially embedded resources such as habits of association, authority within the community, patterns of mutual assistance, and norms and cultural norms of swift and self-reliant response were critical in the early success stories of community rebound. Now to examine the socially embedded resources, we did focus primarily on New Orleans. We conducted field studies using in-depth interviewing techniques in each of these New Orleans neighborhoods. And also we conducted a mixed methods field study in Houston among New Orleanians who had evacuated to Houston but were still living in Houston three years after the storm. And so this gave us a total of 403 research subjects, uh, primarily with in-depth interviews and thousands of hours of interview data to work with. So what I would like to do to today is to lay out in admittedly broad brush strokes some of the principal lessons uh, we've learned from these field studies. They fall into these three general categories, lessons um, that can inform the economics discipline. You know, what do economists learn from this? Lessons that inform policymakers. And then also, what can communities themselves pull um, from the work that we've done? So let's start with economists. Now the principal lesson for economists in the economics discipline is, the so is that social coordination following a disaster and in normal times depends upon socially embedded or non-market resources just as it depends upon resources and function of the market. Just as markets generate price signals that are critical to widespread and spontaneous social coordination, civil society generates non-price signals that are critical to social coordination and post-disaster recovery. So it's a similar story as, as the familiar one about, about um, prices. Prices send the right signals to get things done, right? Well, there are non-price signals emanating from civil society that also, if allowed to work, um, direct resources in the right direction. This is Father Vien Nguyen of the Mary Queen of Vietnam Catholic Church in New Orleans East. The Mary Queen of Vietnam community is in New Orleans East. It's about um, 15 miles to the northeast of um, downtown New Orleans. And in the months following the storm, the Bring New Orleans Back Commission was drafting recommendations that would shut down essentially the New Orleans East community. That the, that the recommendations that eventually came out were that this area should not be allowed to be rebuilt. But before the ink was even dry on these recommendations, this community was already showing robust signs of recovery. By the two-year anniversary mark, 90% of the residents in this uh, Mary Queen of Vietnam community were already back, whereas in New Orleans overall, only 45% of residents had returned. This, uh, a question that, we, that, that this begs for us is why is it that this community, it's not particularly politically influential, it's not particularly wealthy, why was this community able to rebound um, so robustly? And the answer lies in the habits of association, the authority within this community, and cultural norms that favored a swift and self-reliant response. I want to give you a picture, a different kind of picture of this community, one that sort of 
frames it in terms of social networks. Pre-Katrina, every aspect of community life radiated out from the church. Catholic mass was held in Vietnamese twice daily. The church facilities were host to Vietnamese classes and study groups for the neighborhood youth. It was also host to daily gatherings of the community elderly. The neighborhood grid system of pastoral care mapped on completely to the uh, system of, of lay leadership within the church so that there was this mapping between the church and the physical residential community around it. Business networks also radi radiated out from the church, providing professional services in Vietnamese all within walking distance of the church. The coordinating capacity of the church that was in place pre-Katrina was vital to the rebuilding efforts post-Katrina. After the storm, everyone was scattered across uh, various evacuation sites in Dallas and Houston and, and San Antonio, Atlanta, and so on. And Father Vien went to each of these sites, and he met with members of the community and, and assured them that, yes, the church will be rebuilt, and yes, the community will be rebuilt. We are planning for your return. Hmm, right? And so this was exactly the signal that people needed to return robustly. At each of, and, and so in each of the evacuation sites, um, the um, church elders organized who was the community members so that they had a plan of how to, that they would execute the moment they were allowed back in. On October 5th, there was an order issued for this area that people were allowed to come back and have a, what they called a look and leave. They were allowed to come, look and survey their property, survey the damage, but then they had to leave. Well, that's exactly what they did at, at initially. They, they went in en masse and they started to work. When the evening fell and it was time to leave, they didn't leave, they stayed, okay? And so once they had returned, the church served as the hub for information flows and supplies. It also served as a hub of political action to restore electrical power, uh, to establish a FEMA trailer site, and also to fight off city efforts to close the community down. So consider, again, the nature of the collective action problem. It's really a problem. The problem of recovery is one of aligning expectations, right? Um, absent robust signals, community members wouldn't know whether it's smart for them to return or not. But the habits of association that had been built up in this community pre-Katrina were offered sort of a mental template that allowed for effective action in the wake of crisis. So Father Vien's proclamation that the community would in fact be rebuilt was the authoritative signal that the individual resident needed to start putting their own affairs in order so they could orchestrate an individual return. The widespread belief that this community constituted what was often called a second homeland was provided further incentive to follow Father Vien's um, directive to return. Cultural norms favoring self-reliant response that didn't wait on government support also favored a swift return. Because they weren't waiting on government support to return, they didn't have to wait for the many, many months before such government support would materialize. Now, the Mary Queen of Vietnam community is a dramatic example of how important these signaling effects of authority and community norms and habits of association can be. But we see examples of this across New Orleans in diverse communities. And so each of these people uh, represents a different community, represents a different story. And uh, you know that's the teaser for the Q&A, if you want to ask me more about that later. 
So if the lessons for economists is that civil society generates uh, non-price signals that are critical to widespread social coordination and recovery, the next obvious question is, how does public policy support or inhibit that signaling process? A principal lesson that the Mercatus Center Katrina Project has for policymakers is that the same institutional rules of the game that are necessary for the proper functioning of markets are necessary for the social coordination to happen within civil society. When public policy renders rules of basic rules of the game, like private property rights, uncertain, or the rule of law uncertain, the social coordination that happens within civil society is inhibited. So, for example, the redevelopment planning process uh, played a huge role in undermining the basic rules of private property, and the recovery process, as a consequence, was left in a state of suspended animation for many, many, many months, if not years, uh, following the storm unnecessarily. The Bring New Orleans Back Commission recommended that planning committees determine which neighborhoods should be allowed to be rebuilt. It would be the Bring New Orleans Back Commission that would also recommend a moratorium on issuing building, rebuilding permits so that it would give uh, the Planning Commission time to, um, uh, 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 to complete viability studies as to which neighborhoods would be allowed to be rebuilt. They recommended also the widespread and aggressive use of eminent domain to ensure that neighborhoods would not be rebuilt in piecemeal fashion, but instead would, be, would follow a comprehensive plan. During this period, bewildered residents postponed rebuilding as they were awaiting greater clarity about the rules that would govern the rebuilding process. Now, by May 2006, this is one of the reasons why this was seen as a pretty much a disastrous um, thing with the Bring New Orleans Back Commission, but most people stopped paying attention to it because by May 2006, it had been scrapped. Okay? So, so in some sense, people said, oh, it doesn't, it's not important anymore. Our work suggests that, in fact, it was important because this window um, from, from um, September to the following May was a critical window where there were many missed opportunities. But even after the New Orleans, Bring New Orleans Back Commission was, uh, plan was scrapped, others replaced it, with each new planning process leaving property owners in a state of limbo, not knowing which rules would apply to them if they did rebuild, and in some cases whether they would be allowed to rebuild at all. Communities in further um, uh, that were sort of outlying areas, for example, the Lower Ninth Ward, were told by municipal authorities not to expect uh, municipal services like fire and rescue, police, and trash pickup, even though they were still paying taxes for these services. This again perpetuated the state of uncertainty about the long-term viability of their neighborhoods and their property. As long as the uncertainty persisted, the waiting on the sidelines continued, and the collective action problem became more pronounced. So again, the collective action problem is really about aligning expectations. If residents believe others will return, they're more inclined to return. But the delays caused by public policy, even well-meaning public policy, right, like the Road Home Program is a good example, tended to anchor negative expectations because the policies were, were in, increasingly uh, creating more and more delays. Each day that went by that there was no viable, visible sign of rebuilding was another day in which it further anchored the negative expectations about the prospects of a community coming about. So in, in a sense, the negative expectations 
compounded with the delays, became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because the more and more anchored our negative expectations became, the less and less likely people would be um, to return. In addition to the delays created by uncertainty regarding private property rights, the redevelopment planning process further inhibited swift recovery by emphasizing the supposed need for completely redesigning the entire city. Rather than focusing attention on critical and delivery of critical services such as power and removing debris. The return of basic services is critical to tapping the capacity that exists within the business community and within civil society more generally. But in many neighborhoods, the return of municipal services was delayed in order to pursue the perfect redevelopment plan. Overly cautious public policy that for reasons of, say, safety, keep early pioneers, able-bodied early pioneers from taking on the risks of an early return, that kept them from sending those positive signals, those waiting on the sidelines were hoping to see, and also those early pioneers, when they were able to come back, provided critical services to other returnees. It could be something like a re what I might return is my restaurant, which might be nothing more than a lunch cart, but that lunch cart makes a full day's work on rebuilding your home possible. So these early right returnees, because they were um, in some neighborhoods not allowed even the chance to take the risk, it meant further delay of um, the rebuilding process and further anchoring of negative expectations. Okay. I want us also to consider what lessons this research has for communities themselves. As much as I would like to think that our work will profoundly affect public policy in the near future, I have to be a realist. It is very likely that when the next catastrophic disaster hits, that community leaders will not only have to deal with the logistical problems and the social coordination problems that a catastrophic disaster presents, it is also likely that they will be dealing with the problems associated with poorly designed public policy. So it is worth us asking, what is it that communities can do to counteract the effects of bad policy? The most important lesson in this regard is that presence matters. If a community is to foster a robust recovery, they must fill what Virgil and I call the civil society vacuum that is created in the wake of catastrophic disaster. Following a disaster, particularly one in which there's been complete or near complete evacuation, there is the physical and the social space is literally emptied out, at least for a time. The longer that time passes in which community members do not fill this space, the greater the likelihood that government will fill it. In, and that can mean in a literal sense in the form of access restrictions, in the form of, of law enforcement, and the prolonged deployment of National Guard troops. But it also can mean metaphorically filling the space as well with uh, public policy that suspends private property and uh, local control over the fate of the neighborhood. Now, in addition to sending the positive signals um, and providing services that early return returnees can provide, 
if they are able to come back quickly, early returnees start to build a kind of critical mass in which homes are getting rebuilt, but also community centers, churches, schools are getting rebuilt. The presence of civic life make it more politically difficult for the government to refuse the return of municipal services. The presence of civic life make it more difficult for the government to continue curfew restrictions that empty neighborhoods out after a certain time of day. The presence of civic life makes it more politically difficult for government to continue to threaten and exercise widespread eminent domain. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson I think that communities can take away from our work is that stories matter. The communities that returned swiftly and robustly did attend to practical needs, like getting relief supplies and, and rebuilding um, supplies to residents who needed it, to be sure. But in addition to attending to these practical problems, community leaders and residents also drew upon common narratives that reminded one another of their capacity for resilience. In the Mary Queen of Vietnam community, residents reminded one another that Katrina was a, and I'm quoting, mere inconvenience compared to the struggles that they or their parents went through to start life anew after leaving Vietnam. Residents in St. Bernard Parish, a predominantly working class community, reminded each other that they had a tradition steeped in the trades that compared to those neighborhoods filled with those doctors and lawyers, we knew how to rebuild a house. We weren't intimidated by the work that that, that that meant. And that metaphor carried over to the community as well. Residents, many in poor communities that had their share of problems pre-Katrina, reminded themselves and each other that a distinct form of the good life was possible only in their New Orleans neighborhood. Many, many told us that they didn't just want to rebuild. Rather, they were called to recreate the sense of place that made New Orleans and their neighborhood in particular a context in which this distinct and special form of the good life could be found. So in conclusion, the capacity for resilience within civil society depends a good deal upon the paradigm of the social order we as citizens community leaders, policymakers, political leaders, and social theorists adopt. If we persist in the notion that communities are the outcome of top-down human intentional design rather than the grown orders that rather than grown orders that emerge from the ground up, we will likely continue to misidentify the sources of community resilience and create policies that undermine civil society's capacity to create and foster resilience. If, on the other hand, we recognize the social coordination that unfolds from within civil society, then perhaps citizens and community leaders will better recognize the value their individual efforts have towards fostering wider spread patterns of, of social resilience and community resilience. If we recognize that social coordination and recovery unfolds within society and not from the top down, then perhaps policy craft will be reoriented toward tapping this potential rather than inhibiting it. And if we, we in this room, 
uh, recognize that social coordination and recovery unfold within civil society and not from the top down, then perhaps social theorists will come to possess a richer understanding of the social order itself. Again, thank you very much for coming today, and I look forward to your comments and questions. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for my other co-editor for um, getting in on this project with me or actually inviting me into it. It's been a blast. And thank you, Claire and Mercatus Center at large. Um, we began collecting oral histories less than six months after Katrina. And I made my first trip down in March 2007. And since then, we have interviewed 379 New Orleans residents, stakeholders, and business people. I personally have listened to 280 hours of interviews and have read 11,000 pages of transcript. So listening to all that and reading all that, if your ears are even halfway open, you can learn a whole lot. And there are a couple of themes that emerged. Um, some of them were evident in Dr. Chamley Wright's research and in her research that she's done with Dr. Storr. And they are that there is no one Katrina story. You'll see that. Um, two, that New Orleans is a checkered board city. Um, as we've seen with all the footage this weekend on the anniversary of Katrina, as well as the pictures that Emily showed us, some communities rebound quickly, like the New Orleans East um, Mary Queen of Vietnam community. And then some communities look like they did just after the storm, five years later. We've also realized that New Orleanians have a really strong sense of place. When they say there's no place like home, they truly mean it. And we've learned that government has done as much, if not more, to hurt recovery um, as it has done to help it. And we've learned that unclear and changing rules and procedures are a real problem. How We Came Back, the name of our collection of oral histories, will complement the research efforts that Emily and Virgil and other Mercator scholars have been doing but what it seeks to do is allow the Katrina survivors to speak about their challenges and successes for themselves. And today, we are going to learn about one of those people that we met um, during our field work. And remember, this is just one of the stories, and there are many. Miss Miriam is how she referred to herself. Um, she's an African-American woman whose age is, well, indiscernible. She currently resides in the Bywater area of, in the Upper Ninth Ward and is a lifelong resident of the Ninth Ward. The Lower Ninth Ward is the most famous subdivision of the Ninth Ward, but it's divided into two distinct dis neighborhoods. There's Holy Cross and Lower Ninth Ward, and then across from hold on, Holy Cross and the Lower Ninth Ward, across the Industrial Canal is Bywater, and that's where Miss Miriam lives. You need to get that distinction because she, she wants you to know. Ms. Miriam says, I've been in this house about three years. We moved in this house a week before Katrina. I was living one block down the street, though, and I lived there for about two years. I've been here all my life. My parents lived across in the Ninth Ward, well, the lower Ninth Ward. I've always been in this neighborhood, though. We were in the process of buying this house, but we was renting the one down the street. We own this one. She explains that buying a house in this area um, wasn't always easy. She recalls the changes that took place in the community right after the civil rights. After civil rights, we were able to purchase homes anywhere we wanted to because it would be biased if you wouldn't sell to me. That's why the poor whites that got trapped here, they changed the name. The minute the white folks moved over to this side, they didn't want anything to do with the Ninth Ward anymore. So they say, oh, we're in Bywater. 
not I'm living in the ninth ward. They say upper ninth, so they changed it. People overcome amazing things during the storm, and that's one thing we've learned. <laughs> the things they overcome is just astronomical. And part of the reason is because they were no strangers to storms in their own lives. When reminiscing about life before Katrina, Miss Miriam showed us that she was all too familiar with grief. She spoke of it with a strength that would come through as she shared the rest of her Katrina experience. My son, he's living with his father because, well, he set the house on fire, which killed my other two kids, and I can't live with that. Every time I look at him, like, I gave him to his father, he re who, who relocated to Texas with him because of Katrina, and he hasn't come back. But my two oldest my two oldest sons are here, my oldest living boy and the one I got living with me now. He came back post-Katrina. He came back that Thursday. My other son that got work, him and his seven kids there, they relocated because of Katrina, and they're not coming back. And the other children, they're dead. Two in a fire, one by gunshot in six months' time of each other. Miss Miriam lived a hard life. And although she was not an active participant in her neighborhood because she was busy doing other things, she tells us, Miss Miriam recalls that before Katrina, there was always a lot going on in her Bywater neighborhood. Oh yeah, we had, we used to have a lot of festivals back here on Pie and King where we would get together and sell little wares like handmade blankets and what do you call those potluck things? We used to have, let's see, we used to have a lot of them. Last week, they had the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Well, normally we start right here. So they would start here and march all the way to the French quarters where they would pick people up. She really enjoyed her neighborhood and no one there was a stranger to her. Oh, I know everybody in the neighborhood. Before Katrina, the neighborhood was bustling. It had people like this old lady across the street who used, we used to look out for each other. She's 89 years old. Wow, she's 90 now. So she would ask, Miss Miriam, what are you doing? Nothing, I said, what you want? You want something from the store? Well, if you're going that way. And we used to sit on the porch and we would talk and laugh. As a matter of fact, we talked through this whole Katrina thing. I wasn't scared none. She watched as her other neighbors evacuated as Katrina approached, but felt no need to do so herself. Actually, she thought of the evacuees as cowards. And instead, she stayed in her house during the entire storm. My neighbor, she's an attorney, and her husband is an accountant, and we used to sit on the porch. We laughed at them because they were evacuating. We said to them, where are y'all going? They said, Miss Miriam, we're going. I said, cowards. Well, we didn't expect for it to flood up here. My son, the one that's staying with me now, him and his girlfriend were hit. They went to Atlanta, Georgia, and I wind up staying right here. I slept through the storm. I took two Xanax, and I was out. <laughs> Then we was over at the tire shop on Louisa and St. Claude, because my fiance works at the tire shop. You've probably seen him on CNN. They did a report on him because he stayed, and he helped fix policemen tires and the National Guard. Well, they say because of what he was doing for them, they brought him two generators so he could help fix their flats. My sister came the day after, after the storm. When they came by, I walked with them to the convention center, and they said, why are we going to the convention center? Well, Miss Miriam chose the convention center over the Superdome because she'd been part of an evacuation to the Superdome before. And she remembered tension and violence and all that that took place there in a previous hurricane. Um, so at the convention center after Katrina, she had a different experience. She became the linchpin in the system of bartering for some, and um, she also helped commandeer, we'll say commandeer, some required materials that emerged within the convention center 
um, following Katrina. Yeah, I was in the convention center for about three or four days. I was the Indian runner. Yeah, I was like the Indian. Like if you had pepper and you had milk or you needed milk and you needed pepper, people thought I worked there. They'd just come to me and they'd say, Miss, do you have any water? Or Miss, we're missing an egg. See, there were these badasses wannabe gangsters strutting up and down the convention center who were scared to go in the icebox. You see with the military right across the street from us at this hotel, they had to they had a water tank that they had hooked up behind the convention center where they were getting water from, and I discovered it. And I discovered an ice maker because it was, you know, I was nosing around and I wasn't afraid. So we also discovered a kitchen. I was cooking out. I went in there, got in the kitchen, me and my cousin Claudia, when the military left that hotel, I thought, they got 29 floors over there. Somebody's gonna let us up because they got blankets and shit up there. I'm gonna get them. Let's go. I even told them, well, I taught them how to steal. I said, you put the TV or whatever radio you have, you put it under the blanket and food on top. So they did that. And every night they'd go out raiding and they'd bring food and other stuff. And they'd put the food at the foot of my cat, my cot. And I'd get up in the morning and I'd give it to the old people and to the young people and the women and children that couldn't go out getting food for themselves. I gave it to them. After the convention center, Miss Miriam evacuated to Austin, Texas. Although she was impressed by how well the city of Austin responded, like many that we interviewed, she hated it there and she wanted to be back home. She stayed there, however, until she could track down her mother. Then they stayed together in an apartment in Vicksburg for seven months with help from the United Way and FEMA. And when she finally came back home, it was to a deserted neighborhood. Well, anyway, it was kind of hectic, but I got through it. So anyway, I got my house together, moved in here, and chained that generator up to the porch. And I moved the mattress right here in the middle of the floor. And I took my one dog and put him outside and my two dogs inside. I could hear him outside and you could hear people running from the military police, people that was up to no good. They were stealing things from people's houses, taking mantelpieces and taking people's bathtubs. But I had my two dogs inside and my one dog outside. After Katrina, Miss Merriam's Bywater neighborhood was still bustling, but things were different. The older folks of the community had not returned as she tells us. You see, on this side, it's still a bustling community. It still has a lot of white houses to it as well. And a lot of the older people, older people from 60 and up, they don't want to come back. It's too hard for them to rebuild. And some of them don't have any kids to help. And then those that do have kids, they're out stealing. Or they stole whatever little money they got so they could come home. So, they, so these old people are just stuck wherever they are. That's my point. They kind of want to come home, but they can't come home. The number of people we talked to described Katrina as, well, as a mixed blessing. One woman saw, um, was able to actually build a mansion in place of the shack that was destroyed, destroyed by the storm. Another person described it as a great big washing machine. Of course, not everyone saw it that way, but Miss Miriam does see some good coming out of Katrina. When asked if she feels safe in her home on mostly on a mostly deserted street, she replied that not only does she feel safe, but she highlights some of the other positive results of the storm as well. A lot of people are saying that there's a criminal element coming back. Yeah, there are, but you gotta understand, they're only gonna survive once they're allowed to. Oh yeah, I feel safe. And when I'm not doing nothing, I don't have to worry about anything. And New Orleans ain't never looked better, I tell you that. 
You tell, I'll let me tell you, people had trash under their houses that had been under their houses for 50, 60 years. Katrina blew all that out there. She cleaned all of that up. Stuff people needed to do, finally getting done. New Orleans, particularly the Ninth Ward, New Orleanians, particularly those in the Ninth Ward, have a strong sense of place attachment. And Miss Merriam, with all her trouble and heartache, summed that up in a way that a lot of new other, other New Orleanians would agree with. She said, New Orleans is a beautiful place, even in the storm. And this is just an excerpt of one of the 300 stories that we were privileged to hear. And this is one of the 25 stories that will appear in How We Came Back. Some of the stories offer a more detailed account about what life was like before Katrina. As residents take pride in recalling their manicured lawns, as they tell you about how closely knit their communities were and how they could go up the street for a huckabuck. Um, some offer more information about what it was like during their evacuation and their experience waiting to return, like a gentilly man who tells us about how he lost his mother, his brother-in-law, and his ex-wife died all in that period of time while he was away from New Orleans. Or we can hear, or you can read about a gentleman whose dog Bandit was rescued by a Canadian aid worker and kept safe for him in her home in Canada until they were reunited. And they were reunited. You can read about the convenience store owner that made a makeshift infirmary and canteen to treat the wounded and feed the hungry while they waited for rescuers. Some will give more information about the challenges post-Katrina such as um, the challenge of making a row of houses become a community. And the way they did that um, was they shared information, such as the all-important one of how to find a trustworthy contractor. They will tell you, you will hear the stories about what it was like for a husband and wife in their late 60s to work side by side, sometimes 12 hours a day, to gut their own house, to teach themselves how to hang sheetrock while reminding themselves to take it easy because we're not so young anymore. This book project is not explicitly about policy. That you'll find elsewhere. Although clear policy implications will emerge from it if you carefully read the individual stories of survival and return, it's not even a book to call out government for its failures or to praise civil society for its successes. It is a book about individuals and their agency. It is a book about how individuals can and will work to improve their own lives. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.